Welcome to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Well, 1001 fans, I know you've been waiting for a holiday story, and this one, It's a Wonderful Life, now celebrating its 70th birthday, is known to many of you because it was a story made into a movie, a movie that many of us watch again and again, usually during the holidays, because it involves love and family and all the things that make life special. Regardless of your age, this 1946 movie provides a window to another time, and in that respect, it's an education in itself. The cars look different, the old telephones and record players might look like museum pieces to you, and people dressed and wore their hair differently. But the basic themes of love, honor, selfless giving, and loyalty are uniquely human and never change. That's what this movie really delivers on, and that's what draws people of all ages back to it year after year. While researching the movie and the actors who brought it to life, however, I found another story, this time a true story, that will inspire you and remind you that no matter how tough life gets, there is a community of better angels out there that you can turn to when life is throwing curveballs. Remember how the movie starts? It begins way up there in heaven as a conversation between angels. And one of those angels, Clarence Oddbody, angel second class, has been waiting for a chance to earn his wings. As the story unfolds, Clarence is given his chance when he gets sent to the little fictional town of Bedford Falls, New York where a despondent man named George Bailey, who has just witnessed the collapse of his business, is poised on the edge of a bridge and about to jump into an icy river. I'm asking all of you to picture things from that same perspective, looking down from a satellite view to North America, then to the eastern half of North America, below the Great Lakes, and then to the Finger Lakes. You'll know them when you see them. They look like five fingers carved into the landscape. Thanks to Google Earth, that image isn't too hard to conjure. Now add a few highways, starting at the southern end of Lake Cayuga at Ithaca, go right up Route 96 from Ithaca, northward. You'll see the little town of Seneca Falls. Finger Lakes are beautiful any time of year, but in early December, all those rolling hills are covered with snow. And as we focus in on Seneca Falls a little closer, it looks like the town is all gussied up for Christmas. With wreaths on the street lamps, a decorated Christmas tree in the town square, and people window shopping along busy sidewalks. And I'll bet most of you didn't know this, but every year in December, usually for three days, right around December 10th, the people there at Seneca Falls change the name of their town to Bedford Falls. Why? Because they believe that they share a lot of similarities with the set created by It's a Wonderful Life's producer, Frank Capra and that he had very likely visited Seneca Falls in 1945 when the movie It's a Wonderful Life was still in its early planning stages. He never documented his visit there, but according to the notes at therealbedfordfalls.com, he did document his visit to New York City in late 1945 to try to talk actress Jean Arthur into taking the female lead. She was a big name at that time and had been the leading lady in a number of films for over 10 years, but she had made a commitment to Broadway and couldn't do it. From there, Capra very likely headed west on Route 17 to see his aunt, who lived in Auburn. Once he hit the southern Finger Lakes region, he headed up through Ithaca, and he couldn't help but drive through Seneca Falls. He was no doubt looking for a setting for the story he had optioned, 
even though the town would be recreated on a set in California. One look at Seneca Falls downtown with its steel truss canal bridge, and Frank was likely hooked. It matched the story he had just optioned, a story called The Greatest Gift, perfectly. He very likely stopped to get a haircut. As Seneca Falls barber Tony Bellissima recalled, after seeing the movie, and then seeing the name Frank Capra appear as producer near the beginning of the credits. Bellissima recalled that a man named Capra had stopped in for a cut in late December, and they had both shared stories about growing up in Italy and shared their family names, which is how he remembered the name. After the haircut, Capra had very likely walked down Bridge Street to Canal Bridge, where he couldn't miss the plaque that still bolted onto a part of the bridge there today. The sign reads, Here, April 12th. 1917, Antonio Vercalli gave his life to save another. He honored the community. The community honors him. Somehow, Capra got the rest of the story of what happened there. Maybe it was the barber, or maybe a restaurant up the street, or maybe there was an historical marker there in 1945 with the expanded story, which was that at about 10.30 a.m., April 12th, 1917, a 19-year-old woman named Ruth Dunham threw herself off the bridge into the canal, trying to commit suicide. Dunham lived at the corner of Bridge and William Streets, about a block from the water. The act was witnessed by several persons who succeeded in saving her life, a story in the April 13, 1917 issue of the Seneca Falls Reveille said. But in the effort, an Italian resident whose first name was Tony, who jumped into the icy river to save her, knowing he himself could not swim, drowned. The girl survived, but 17-year-old Tony Veracalli didn't make it. Tony had come to Seneca Falls with his father, Dominic Veracalli, in 1907. They intended to find work and save money to bring the rest of the family to the United States. Seneca Falls was their dream for a better life. Tony became Ruth Dunham's guardian angel. As it turned out, Frank Capra and his father had come from Sicily to California with nothing in 1903, trying to start a new life in California. And Capra probably felt a lot in common with Tony Vericalli. The story that Capra had optioned was called The Greatest Gift, a 4,000-word short story written by Philip Van Doren Stern, who was an American author, editor, and Civil War historian, whose story, The Greatest Gift, became the movie It's a Wonderful Life. Philip Van Doren Stern was born in Wyalusing, Pennsylvania, which is up there in the northeast part of the state in what they proudly call the Endless Mountains, into a family of humble means. His Pennsylvania-born father was a traveling merchant of Bavarian descent who came to Wyalusing from West Virginia with his New Jersey-born wife. Stern studied hard and graduated from Rutgers University, his passions being history, writing, and advertising. He would later become a publishing editor working at some pretty big publishing houses, like Simon & Schuster and Alfred Knopf. He wrote over 40 books on all kinds of subjects, from Civil War to collections of Poe, Abraham Lincoln, and Thoreau. And during World War II, he became the general manager of editions for the armed services, creating pocket-sized books that soldiers could easily carry with them. In February of 1938, Stern awoke from a vivid dream a dream in which a small-town man named George Pratt was standing on a bridge on Christmas Eve of 1943. He was contemplating suicide. Before he could jump, 
he was approached by a strange but well-mannered man carrying a bag who, upon seeing George, approached him and started up a conversation. George tells the man that he wished he'd never been born. The man tells him that his wish has been granted and that George had never been born. He could start a new life today. He then tells George to take the bag with him and if anyone asks, to tell them that he was a door-to-door salesman. Inside the bag were sample brushes, and the Fuller Brush Man was well known for knocking on doors back in those days when housewives stayed home to raise the kids and take on the very tough job of homemaking and home maintenance in addition to raising the children. George follows his instructions, returns to town, and is surprised to see that no one recognizes him. He inquires about his friends and finds that they've taken often worse paths in life due to his absence. His little brother, whom George had saved from an ice skating accident in real life, died without George there to save him. His wife married someone else, and when George goes to her home, she doesn't recognize him. He tries to show her his cleaning brushes, but her husband comes home and runs him off. Having enough of this, George returns to the man on the bridge and questions the strange man, who explains to George that he had been wanting more than he had been given, even though he had been given the greatest gift of all, life. Realizing this, George begs to have his old life back, and the old man grants it. So how did Stern's story find its way to the silver screen? First, knowing what we know now, we can say that Frank Capra, after his visit to Seneca Falls, had an inspired vision for It's a Wonderful Life. Stern kept notes of his dream and started work on a book in 1939, finishing it four years later as a short story. He had a lot of connections, but couldn't find a publisher, so he published 200 copies on his own and sent them to his friends as 20-page Christmas cards in December of 1943. His daughter, Marguerite Stern Robinson, recalled, I was in the third grade and remember delivering a few of these cards to my teachers and my friends. My father, who was himself from a mixed religious background, explained to me that while this story takes place at Christmas time and that we were sending it as a Christmas card to our friends, it's a universal story for all people in all times. The story was published as a book in December of 1944 with illustrations by Raffaello Busoni. One of those 200 Christmas cards came to the attention of RKO Pictures producer David Hempstead, who showed it to actor Cary Grant, who became interested in playing the lead role. RKO purchased the motion picture rights for $10,000 in April of 1944. Frank Capra read The Greatest Gift and immediately saw its potential. RKO, anxious to unload the project in 1945, sold the rights to Capra's production company, Liberty Films, which had a nine-film distribution agreement with RKO. And since they'd been working on it, they threw in the three scripts for free. Capra and his writers turned the story into a screenplay that Capra would rename It's a Wonderful Life in 1946, not long after that trip to New York. The script underwent many revisions throughout pre-production and during filming. Although final screenplay credit went to the husband-wife duo of Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett, they had actually walked out on the job with Francis saying, When Capra called us and asked how it's coming along and when will you be finished, they answered, were finished right now, and they put down their pens and walked out, chafing under Capra's constant changes. Later, the writers admitted a number of reasons, not the least of which was that the concept was pure schmaltz, 
The story was crazy, and they didn't see it becoming a success. But there were a number of people who mattered who saw the value in a sentimental story that spoke of love and community. In December 1946, Jimmy Stewart, one of those people who played George Bailey in the film, wrote to Van Doren Stern, calling the story an inspiration to everyone concerned with the picture. The fundamental story was so sound and right. As mentioned, Seneca Falls, New York, claims that when Frank Capra visited their town in 1945, he was inspired to model Bedford Falls after it. Seneca Falls has an annual It's a Wonderful Life Festival every December. In mid-2009, the Hotel Clarence opened in Seneca Falls, named for George Bailey's guardian angel. So that's an option for you if you're planning a trip. On December 10th, 2010, the It's a Wonderful Life Museum opened in Seneca Falls with Carolyn Grimes, our guest today, who played Zuzu, the youngest of the Bailey children in the movie, Cutting the Ribbon. Now let's get to the story. To refresh your memories, or introduce the story to you for the first time if you're a newbie, on Christmas Eve, 1945, in the fictional town of Bedford Falls, New York, George Bailey is suicidal. Prayers for him reach heaven, where Clarence Oddbody, Angel Second Class, is assigned to save George in order to earn his angel wings. To prepare, Clarence has shown flashbacks of George's life. The first is in 1919, when 12-year-old George saves his younger brother Harry, who falls through the ice on a frozen pond from drowning. George loses his hearing in one ear as a result. Later, while working after school at the local drugstore, George sees that his employer, Mr. Gower, distraught over his son's death from the flu, has accidentally added poison to a child's prescription drug, and George intervenes to stop it from causing harm. On George's brother Harry's graduation night in 1928, George talks to Mary Hatch, who has had a crush on George from an early age. They end up singing a few lines from Buffalo Gal, Won't You Come Out Tonight, and walk through the neighborhood, where Mary throws a rock through the window of an old abandoned house. But all that happiness is interrupted by news of his father's death. George postpones his travel plans in order to sort out the family business. Bailey Brothers Building and Loan, a longtime competitor to Henry F. Potter, the local banker and the richest man in town. Potter wishes to dissolve the building and loan to take over its business. George convinces the board of directors to vote against Potter. They agree on condition that George runs the business which is going to require him to stay there in Bedford Falls. George and Mary get married. On their, way, on their way out of town to their honeymoon, they witness a run on the bank. It's 1929, and the stock market has crashed, and they use their honeymoon savings to lend financial support at the building and loan until the bank reopens. Over time, George establishes Bailey Park, a housing development with small houses financed by loans from Bailey Building and Loan which allows people to own their own homes rather than pay rent to live in Potter's overpriced slums. Potter, frustrated at losing control of the housing market, attempts to lure George into becoming his assistant. George is momentarily tempted, but rejects the offer. During World War II, George is ineligible for service because of his bad ear. His brother Harry becomes a Navy pilot and shoots down a kamikaze plane that would have bombed an amphibious transport. He's awarded the Medal of Honor. On Christmas Eve morning, 1945, the town prepares a hero's welcome for Harry. Uncle Billy goes to Potter's Bank to deposit $8,000 for the building and loan. That $8,000 was worth over $100,000 today. 
He teases Potter, taking his newspaper and bragging about Harry being on the front page. The banker angrily grabs the newspaper, inside of which Billy has unintentionally tucked the envelope containing the money. Upon seeing the money, Potter realizes the potential scandal could lead to the building and loan's downfall. Potter hides the money, knowing its loss will cause severe financial problems for the building and loan. When Uncle Billy can't find the money, he and George frantically search for it. When the bank examiner arrives to review their records, George berates his uncle for endangering the building and loan, goes home, and takes out his frustration on his family. He later apologizes to his wife and children and leaves. He goes to appeal to Potter for a loan. When George offers his life insurance policy as collateral, Potter says George is worth more dead than alive and phones the police to have him arrested. George leaves, gets drunk at a local bar, and is involved in a fight before he leaves and goes to a nearby bridge, considering suicide. The film's narrative catches up to the time of the opening scene. Before he can jump, Clarence dives into the river just before George does, causing George to rescue Clarence rather than killing himself. But when Clarence tells George he's his guardian angel, George doesn't believe it. When George says he wishes he'd never been born, Clarence decides to grant his wish and show George an alternate timeline in which he never existed. Bedford Falls becomes Pottersville, and it's a less congenial place for sure. Mr. Gower has recently been released from prison for manslaughter because George wasn't there to stop him from putting poison in the child's pills. The building alone is closed down as George never took over after Mr. Bailey's passing. George's mother doesn't recognize him. She reveals that Uncle Billy was institutionalized after the collapse of the building alone. In the cemetery where Bailey Park would have been, George discovers the grave of his brother. Clarence tells him all the soldiers on the transport died, as Harry was never there to save them, because George had never saved Harry from drowning. Mary never married. When George says he's her husband, she screams for the police, causing George to flee and the local policeman to give chase. George, now convinced that Clarence is really his guardian angel, runs back to the bridge and begs for his life back, and the alternate timeline changes back to the original reality. George then runs home to await his arrest. Mary and Uncle Billy arrive, having rallied the townspeople, who donate more than enough to cover the missing $8,000. Harry arrives and toasts George. A bell on the Christmas tree rings, and his daughter Zuzu recalls a story that says the sound means that an angel has just earned his wings, signifying Clarence's promotion. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. All in all, it's a heart-rending story of community and love and a reminder of just how important each life is and how our actions can affect so many people in positive ways. Ever hear of the Dalai Lama and the parable of the pebble? It goes like this. 
Just as ripples spread out when a single pebble is dropped into the water, the actions of individuals can have far-reaching effects. How true. It's a Wonderful Life was shot at RKO Radio Picture Studio in Culver City, California, and the 89-acre RKO Movie Ranch in Encino, where Bedford Falls consisted of art director Max Rees' Oscar-winning set originally designed for the 1931 epic film Cimarron, which covered four acres with a main street stretching 300 yards with 75 stores and buildings and a residential neighborhood. For It's a Wonderful Life, Capra built a working bank set, added a tree-lined center parkway, and planted 20 full-grown oak trees. It was one of the most elaborate sets ever built at the time. It took two months to build. The movie was shot in the summer of 1946 in the middle of a heat wave. If you look closely, you can see Jimmy Stewart sweating in some of the snow scenes. And speaking of snow scenes, they engineered a whole new kind of snow for this movie because Capra wanted a realistic look. In past movies, producers had been using cornflakes painted white as snow. This turned out to be too noisy. The crunch didn't sound right. And who knows, it probably attracted all kinds of rats and mice as well. At any rate, Capra had the special effects department mix fomite, which was a fire retardant, with at least three other materials and 6,000 gallons of it were used to turn the set into a winter wonderland. The RKO Special Effects Department actually received the only Academy Award given to It's a Wonderful Life, although it was nominated for six, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Film Editing, Best Sound Recording, and Technical Achievement. The movie, The Best Years of Our Lives, a story of American servicemen returning from World War II and the challenges they faced, ran away with the top four. Pigeons, cats, dogs, and at least one milk cow were allowed to roam the set in order to give the town a lived-in feel. Due to the requirement to film in an alternate universe setting, as well as during different seasons, the set was extremely adaptable. And the story alone covered at least 25 years of their lives, so that required costume changes, set changes, vehicle upgrades, the whole deal. Filming started on April 15, 1946, and ended on July 27, 1946, exactly on deadline, for the 90-day principal photography schedule. RKO's Movie Ranch in Encino, a filming location of Bedford Falls, was raised in 1954. There were only two surviving shooting locations from the film that I could find, but Carolyn might be able to fill us in on a few more. That was a question from one of our fans at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes. The first is the swimming pool that was unveiled during the famous dance scene where George courts Mary. That's located in the gymnasium at Beverly Hills High School and is still in operation as of last check. The second is the Martini Home in La Cañada, Flint Ridge, California. Here's one to look for. During filming in the scene where Uncle Billy gets drunk at Harry and Ruth's Welcome Home Newlyweds Party, George points him in the right direction home. As the camera focuses on George, smiling at his uncle staggering away, a crash is heard in the distance, and Uncle Billy yells, I'm all right, I'm all right. As it turns out, a stagehand had left equipment on the set, and the actor Thomas Mitchell had accidentally knocked it over. Capra left in Thomas Mitchell's impromptu ad-lib, although the crashing noise was augmented with added sound effects. The main street of Bedford Falls, including the Bailey Brothers Savings and Loan and the Bedford Falls Trust and Savings, was located on the RKO Encino Ranch. 
The actual location of the Bedford Falls Main Street ran east-west from what is now the east side of the 5900 block of Ostrom Avenue in Sino. That area is now a residential neighborhood. And by the way, there is a town of Bedford and its neighbor, Bedford Hills, in New York. And there is at least one scene in the movie showing road signs pointing to Katona and Chippaqua, which are nearby them in Westchester County. Bedford Hills has a similar main street, but a different physical layout, and no canal or river, no steel bridge. Remember the old deserted house that Mary and George were looking at when George bet Mary she couldn't reach it with a rock? Capra had originally instructed a set technician to throw the rock for Mary, but Donna Reed, who had been an athlete in school in Denison, Iowa, picked up a rock and broke the window with her first toss. And this one, surprising to many in the younger generation, the song Buffalo Gals was not about long-haired, buffalo-sized women. Buffalo Gals referred to Buffalo, New York, and was simply a request for the girls to come out and party. Buffalo Gals plays seven times throughout the film. And the theme of bells ringing is repeated often in the film as well. In the intro music, and other background music, in the Christmas decorations, cash registers, telephones ringing, a bell on Mr. Potter's desk, the studio logo, doorbells, and even the theater marquee downtown where the Bells of St. Mary is playing. But most of all, the theme is highlighted when George Bailey's youngest daughter, Zuzu, again played by Carolyn Grimes, says these famous words. And Carolyn's going to be joining us in just a few minutes. As to the music score, that was written by one of Hollywood's greatest legends, Dmitry Tiomkin, who created more memorable movie themes than any composer in history. Those of you who follow the old movies will recognize these titles. High Noon, featuring the song Do Not Forsake Me, O My Darling, sung by Frankie Lane. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. The High and the Mighty. You Can't Take It With You. Gunfight at OK Corral, Duel in the Sun, Rio Bravo, The Alamo, The Court Martial of Billy Mitchell, Giant, Town Without Pity, The Unforgiven, and many more. Tiomkin was a Russian Jew who emigrated to the U.S. in the 1930s and fell in love with the American West, composing soaring themes that captured the feeling of America's bigness and promise. In addition to a great story and set, the cast really made the movie. Jimmy Stewart, who received an Oscar nomination for his role as George Bailey, later recalled in an interview that when Frank Capra shared the plot with him, Capra had trouble explaining the story, ending the conversation with, This really doesn't sound so good, does it? Stewart, in typical fashion, replied, Frank, if you want me to be a crazy sentimental picture about a guy that wants to kill himself and an angel named Clarence comes down who can't swim, and I save him. Well, when do we start? For Donna Reed, although she had appeared in 20 movies, this was her first starring role. She had some serious competition from Gene Arthur, Anne Dvorak, Olivia de Havilland, Martha Scott, and Ginger Rogers. But when Capra met her, it was Donna Reed all the way. We'll get to her in a minute. Lionel Barrymore played the mean Mr. Potter, whose aim it was to crush Bailey's lending business. And when he fails to disclose that Uncle Billy had accidentally handed him all the Bailey Bank's deposits, that was the big factor that drove George Bailey to contemplate suicide. 
It was Barrymore who convinced Jimmy Stewart to take the role when Stewart confided in him that he had only returned from the war front just weeks before and was nervous about getting into acting again so soon after being away for four years. Stewart, as you'll soon discover, if you weren't aware of it, was a bomber pilot during World War II, having taken a five-year break from acting to fight. Barrymore's role as Potter earned him the number four all-time bad guy in AFI's Top 100, while Jimmy Stewart took the number nine hero position, but third most loved male actor overall. The world of acting has probably never known a more kind, compassionate, patriotic, and moral man than Jimmy Stewart. Just trying to trim a 17-page bio down to a few paragraphs here is a task because he accomplished so much in his life. But for younger generations coming up, if you're curious as to who the real respected stars of the 40s, 50s, and 60s were, Jimmy Stewart is the name you need to remember. Try as you might, you won't find any dirt on Jimmy Stewart. He was a bomber pilot in World War II. He flew 20 missions, and he was awarded five silver stars and the French Croix de Guerre, during his years of service. He became a Brigadier General in the U.S. Air Force and flew at least one mission over Hanoi in the late 60s as an advisor. As a film star, he acted with almost every major name in the industry, and he took roles on TV later in his long career. As a husband, he was faithfully married 45 years to the same woman, while his acting career was placing him next to literally hundreds of women, many of whom were attracted to him. I remember him best for his role in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, where he played a young lawyer who had just arrived in a small western town, which was being terrorized by a killer and bully, Liberty Valance, played by Lee Marvin. Stewart preached to the entire town that they had to stand up against terror and violence, but when no one wanted to risk getting shot, Stewart ended up facing down Valance in a gunfight. John Wayne's character helped out Stewart's character with a well-placed shot from an alleyway. Although It's a Wonderful Life was nominated for five Academy Awards, including Stewart's third Best Actor nomination, it received mixed reviews and only disappointingly moderate success at the box office. However, in the decades since the film's release, it grew to define Stewart's film persona and is widely considered as a sentimental Christmas film classic and, according to the American Film Institute, one of the 100 best American movies ever made. Cary Grant once said of Stewart's acting technique, he had the ability to talk naturally. He knew that in conversations, people do often interrupt one another, and it's not always so easy to get a thought out. It took a little time for the sound men to get used to him, but he had an enormous impact. And then, some years later, Marlon Brando comes out and does the same thing all over again. But what people forget is that Jimmy did it first. As for Donna Reed, born Donna Bell Mullinger in Denison, Iowa, who played Stewart's girlfriend and later wife in the story, which takes us through 25 years of life in Bedford Falls. This was her first starring role in the movies, and she knocked it out of the park, beginning a career in movies and TV that would last through four award-filled decades, including her own television show. And when you think of how well these actors played their parts, think of the fact that Stewart was 37 years old, and she was 24, when he and Donna Reed played high school sweethearts in this movie, and they both did great jobs aging gracefully throughout the story. She would later fill in for Barbara Bel Geddes for one year on the TV show Dallas, some of you old-timers might remember, until Bel Geddes, who had resigned her role, came back and was given her role back, 
which brought a lawsuit as Donna Reed sued the production company for breach of contract and won. George Bailey's mother was played by Beulah Bondi, who was to portray Stewart's mother in five different feature films. Freddie Othello, the high school prankster that's first seen talking to Mary Hatch on the dance floor, and later throws the switch that opens the dance floor, causing the dancers to fall into the pool, is played by Carl Switzer, better known as Alfalfa in The Little Rascals. Look for Ward Bond, who played Bert the Cop, teaming with his pal Ernie the cab driver. And although the writers of Sesame Street say they weren't Jim Henson's inspiration for Bert and Ernie, we still think they were. Ward Bond was a starting lineman for the first national championship football team at USC in 1928, graduating in 1931 with an engineering degree. Bond met Marion Michael Morrison there, who came to be known as John Wayne, and who played tackle for USC in 1926. And they became lifelong friends and business colleagues. Bond, Wayne, and the entire Southern Cal team were hired to appear in the movie Salute, a football film starring George O'Brien and directed by John Ford. And that was where Bond and Wayne first met John Ford. Bond had uncanny luck in getting into great movies as a supporting actor. He appeared in more of the AFI's top 100 films than any other actor and was in 12 films which were nominated for Best Picture, another record for an actor. Just to name a few, Gone with the Wind, The Searchers, The Grapes of Wrath, Sergeant York, which is one of my favorites, The Maltese Falcon, and The Quiet Man. The Duke gave the eulogy at Ward Bond's funeral when he died unexpectedly in Dallas attending the Cotton Bowl. And here's one very few people know. Look for Sheldon Leonard playing the bartender. If that name rings a bell for any of you old-time TV viewers, it might be because you've seen his name shown as producer in a number of highly successful television shows, including The Dick Van Dyke Show, Gomer Pyle, I Spy, The Danny Thomas Show, and The Andy Griffith Show. Leonard worked for years as a supporting actor, usually portraying a heavy and often with a thick Brooklyn accent in over 50 movies and radio shows. It's a Wonderful Life is considered one of the most critically acclaimed films ever made. It was nominated for five Academy Awards, including Best Picture, and has been recognized by the AFI as one of the 100 best American films ever made, placing number 11 on its initial 1998 Greatest Movie list. It would also place number one on its list of the most inspirational American films of all time. Frank Capra revealed that this was his personal favorite among the films he directed and that he screened it for his family every Christmas season. It's a Wonderful Life premiered at the Globe Theater in New York on December 20, 1946 to mixed reviews. While Capra considered the contemporary critical reviews to be either universally negative or at best dismissive, Time said, It's a Wonderful Life is a pretty wonderful movie. It has only one formidable rival, Goldwyn's The Best Years of Our Lives, as Hollywood's Best Picture of the Year. Director Capra's inventiveness, humor, and affection for human beings kept it glowing with life and excitement. The reviewers were from two camps. They either criticized the movie as being too sentimental or they loved it for what it was. Bosley Crowther, writing for the New York Times, complimented some of the actors, including Stuart and Reed, but concluded that the weakness of this picture from this reviewer's point of view is the sentimentality of it. It's a illusory concept of life. Mr. Capra's nice people are charming, 
His small town is a quite beguiling place, and his pattern for solving problems is most optimistic and facile. But somehow, they all resemble theatrical attitudes rather than average realities. Crowther got it entirely upside down. The movie is the way we all want life to be. Goodness enriched. The film, which went into general release on January 7, 1947, placed 26th in box office revenues for 1947, out of more than 400 features released. And that's not so bad. Only one place ahead of another Christmas film, Miracle on 34th Street. They both came out that same year. The film was supposed to be released in January, but was moved to December 46 to make it eligible for the 1946 Academy Awards. That's a move that probably hurt it, because 1947 didn't have the competition that 1946 did. The film recorded a loss of $525,000 at the box office for RKO and placed Frank Capra, who bankrolled it, in bankruptcy. Despite initially performing poorly at box office because of high production costs and stiff competition, the film has come to be regarded as a classic and it's a staple of Christmas television around the world. Theatrically, the film's break-even point was $6.3 million, approximately twice the production cost, a figure it never came close to achieving in its initial release. An appraisal in 2006 reported, Although it was not the complete box office failure that today everyone believes, it was initially a major disappointment and confirmed, at least to the studios, that Capra was no longer capable of turning out the populist features that made his films the must-see, money-making events they once were. And this is me. Capra's life and career are worthy of a movie, if anyone out there is listening. He had come from Sicily with his family in steerage and scrounged to survive as a poor Sicilian immigrant living in what is now the Chinatown section of San Francisco. He was brought up Roman Catholic and religious values were important to him as he finally connected with movie making in the 30s, where he worked for a number of production houses, including being paid as a gag writer for the Our Gang series. He became a major in World War II, went to work producing a series of military documentaries, and won a medal for his efforts, producing What It Means to Be a Soldier. He loved America, believed it to be a promised land of opportunity, and constantly tried to portray the better side of mankind in all his work when he became a successful director for Columbia. You can see his fingerprint throughout It's a Wonderful Life. Capra made that film. Although It's a Wonderful Life and his following movie, The State of the Union, were successful soon after the war ended, Capra's themes were becoming out of step with changes in the film industry and the public mood. Author and critic Friedman finds that while Capra's ideas were popular with Depression-era and pre-war audiences, they became less relevant to a prospering post-war America. Capra had become disconnected from an American culture that had changed during the previous decade. Biographer Joseph McBride argues that Capra's disillusionment was more related to the negative effect that the House on American Activities Committee had on the film industry in general. Capra retired from filmmaking in the early 50s, blaming his early retirement from films on the rising power of stars, which forced him to continually compromise his artistic vision. He also claimed that increasing budgetary and scheduling demands were constraining his creative abilities. Film historian Michael Medved agrees with and understands Capra's impressions, 
noting that he walked away from the movie business because he refused to adjust to the cynicism of the new order. In his autobiography written in 1971, Capra expressed his feelings about the shifting film industry. He wrote, The winds of change blew through the dream factories of make-believe, tore at its crinoline tatters. The hedonists, the hemophiliac bleeding hearts, the god-haters, the quick-buck artists who substituted shock for talent, all cried, Shake em, rattle em. God is dead. Long live pleasure. Nudity? Yay. Wife-swapping? Yay. Liberate the world from prudery. Emancipate our films from morality. Kill for thrill. Shock. To hell with good and man. Dredge up is evil. Capper added that in his opinion, practically all the Hollywood filmmaking of today is stooping to cheap, salacious pornography in a crazy bastardization of a great art to compete for the patronage of deviates. I can imagine you listeners out there, some with their heads nodding up and down, and some with their heads nodding sideways. It makes for a great debate question. Like, have movies gotten worse through the years or better? Or are they a reflection of society, or do they try to change it? We'll cover those topics in our Facebook group, and I'll be asking Carolyn some of those questions as well to get her opinion. By 1952, at the age of 55, Capra effectively retired from Hollywood filmmaking and spent his later years working with Caltech, his alma mater, to produce educational films on science topics. The film's elevation to the status of beloved classic came decades after its initial release, when it became a television staple during Christmas season in the late 1970s, thanks to a lapse in copyright status. This came as a welcome surprise to Frank Capra and others involved with its production. It's the damnedest thing I've ever seen, Capra told the Wall Street Journal in 1984. The film has a life of its own now, and I can look at it like I had nothing to do with it. I'm like a parent whose kid grows up to be president. I'm proud, but it's the kid who did the work. I didn't even think of it as a Christmas story when I first ran across it. I just liked the idea. In a 1946 interview, Capra described the film's theme as the individual's belief in himself and that he made it to combat a modern trend toward atheism. Some people might say, score one for God and angels. The film's positive reception has continued into the present, and review aggregator Rotten Tomatoes currently reports a 94% certified fresh approval rating. The website's critical consensus reads, The holiday classic to define all holiday classics. It's a Wonderful Life is one of a handful of films worth an annual viewing. One of the youngest actors on the set, and certainly one loaded with charm and grace, was named Carolyn Grimes, and her tale is one that only came to the public eye in recent years. She played the part of little Zuzu Bailey, George Bailey's youngest daughter, who is best known for the lines that closed the movie and left people with tears in their eyes and reaching for Kleenexes. She was born Carolyn Grimes in Hollywood, California. At age five, she studied piano and violin at the Boyd School for Actors. Her mother guided her into acting, found her an agent, and Carolyn did well in Hollywood, appearing in a string of movies that included The Bishop's Wife, It's a Wonderful Life, and Rio Bravo, among others, until the age of 12, when her life suddenly turned upside down. Carolyn, we're very glad to have you with us today at 1001 Heroes Podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. 
I know that all our fans are anxious to hear your story, and I'm hoping you can start at the beginning, how you first became a child actor and what your experience was in Hollywood. Well, I started pretty early. My mother, uh, I was an only child, and she was a stage mom, and she gave me every lesson possible. I danced, I sang, I did drama, I started piano when I was three, the violin when I was five. I did everything. She pushed me out there, and she got me an agent, and the agent liked me. She sent me on some interviews, and by golly, I got some parts, and that's how it all started. I was four years old when I started. I'd already done four movies before It's a Wonderful Life, so I was kind of a, a veteran by then, and it was just another job. Went to studio school all the time. Um, I had a, I, I really loved it. It was fun because every set was different that I went on. It was like a world of make-believe wherever I went. Every day I'd go out the door when I'd leave home, I'd never know what I was getting into, whether it would be a Western or, you know, whether it'd be on horses or, or there'd be fake snow or whatever, because I really did love the fake snow from It's a Wonderful Life. But I, I was in the movies for um, quite a little while. I did 16 films, and I worked with some of the greatest movie legends of all time. I mean, Bing Crosby and Cary Grant, and John Wayne, Gary Cooper, um, you know, Fred McMurray, a lot of the greats, really great movies. Another good movie for Christmas that I did was The Bishop's Wife with Cary Grant, David Nevin, and Loretta Young. And I always have to watch that. Um, I watch it on Christmas Eve every year. I love that movie. It's, it's a, a sweet movie, and it's about Christmas. And, and it's really uh, got a lot of great messages in it, much like It's a Wonderful Life. Do you remember? At, I mean, you were a child actor, and fortunately, you have you have film and a lot of photographs to help you remember. But I'm wondering what you do remember of some of those actors and some of those movie sets. What the surprises were, and how you got along with them. You know, each movie was different, and and I do remember because there were so many different activities that happened. Like, for instance, on the set of The Bishop's Wife, Cary Grant uh, would come and get me every day at lunchtime. And he would take me, and we'd go. There was really an ice skating rink on the stage, and he would pull me around on a sled while he was practicing his ice skating every day at lunch. He was just a really nice guy. He read me stories, told me stories. Uh, I, I just really enjoyed working with him. I mean, every, every movie had pluses. I never really had a bad experience. It was all good, and... Um, whether that was just my luck or my mother made that happen, I don't know. But everyone I worked with, I enjoyed. And every person that, that I met was very good to me. So, And, you know, there were a few stars that you were told, you know, nah, they don't like kids, so stay away from them. So that I, I abided by. I was a very disciplined child, and I minded, and I did what I was told to do. Otherwise, you wouldn't make it very far in that business. So... <laughs> That uh, that helps a lot. <laughs> what do you remember from uh, It's a Wonderful Life? Do you remember Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed and Frank Capra? Oh, yes, I remember Mr. Capra very well. He used to get down on his knees and look us kids in the eye, you know, kind of eye level. So he'd be on our level, and he could tell us 
just exactly what he wanted us to do, how he wanted us to act. You know, we weren't reading at that time. And so what we had to memorize our lines. And, you know, if he changed it, that'd be okay. We'd get it. It just was a, he was very um, he, natural. He let people be natural. He, he didn't make you stick to the script verbatim. If there was something that you wanted to say in a different way, but you got the point across, that was okay. And he, he didn't change it because he wanted people to act natural. He was just a, he was a genius, I think. I mean, there's so many things in the movie that he put in there just uh, behind the scenes that you probably never thought about. Like, for instance, every time you see the blackbird fly in on Uncle Billy, mm-hmm. well, all that means Mr. Potter's bearing down on the Bailey Building and Loan. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he put so many wonderful things in there that it just really made the movie great. I, I found in my research that he had come up with the concept of the uh, snow made from fomite uh, and then adding a lot of, I think it was sugar and, and water. He had 6,000 gallons of that made into snow, and it was the most realistic movie snow to date that the movies had ever seen. Well, the main ingredient was ivory soap flakes. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So it was more of a mixture of fomite and ivory soap flakes. And uh, it was... Well, you notice, you'll you'll notice when um, George is pulling Clarence out of the water. Oh my goodness! There's such a huge soap film all over their faces, oh. and the the snow was bubbling and going all around them. You know, the water is all sudsy. You notice it? It's there. <laughs> they were having an incredibly heat hot heat wave at the time we did the movie, and. They did it in three months, which is, was record time, but it was very, very hot. We had, a, we had some fans uh, write in to us with some questions for you, and one was, do you remember anything specifically about Jimmy Stewart? Tall, way tall. <laughs> <laughs> he was six feet four, and oh, wow. so, you know, I, I'm on his back or in his arms all the time. It was pretty remarkable, actually, <laughs> that... Uh, I I didn't fall off because he was really, really tall and just as gentle and kind and sweet as could be. He really was a great man. He did, uh, in later years, He I got out of Hollywood and um, I kind of, well, I did lose contact with everybody I ever knew. And uh, so I was kind of in the middle of nowhere. Well, he in 1980, um, Mr. Stewart was getting questions from people asking him whatever happened to that kid. And so he had his secretary look me up, and she found me in the middle of Kansas, and that's kind of how we hooked up again, Mr. Stewart and I, and we saw each other after that. Uh, Another question we got, are there today any surviving film locations? Culver City Studios is where the movie was filmed. Mm Mm-hmm what's known as Culver City Studios today. Back then it was RKO Pathé. But um, the Studio Ranch is no longer there. It's now a park called Balboa Park. And then there was also the Martini's House, which was real. And actually it's still there. It's in La Cunada, uh Fentridge area there. And so it's still there. And also the other place that they filmed was the... Uh, Beverly Hills High School Gymnasium, one of the gymnasiums, 
where the pool scene was shot, where the floor opens up and there's a pool, mm -hmm. and that does still exist as well. Okay. What was it that happened? Uh, I think you were 12, and you had a tragedy begin to strike your life, and could you kind of go through that and what happened? Well, uh, when I was 8 years old, my mother started getting sick, and um, then she died when I was 14, and then my father got killed in an automobile accident when I was 15. So the court in Hollywood shipped me to a little town in Missouri, and that was more or less the end of my movie career <laughs> and anything else that had to do with Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, it's a long way from Hollywood, isn't it? Yes, it is. And, it is indeed. And what were your aunt and uncle like? Well, it was my father's brother, and unfortunately he had a really mean wife. And so it wasn't pleasant there in their home at all. It was not pleasant, but I survived. And I had a lot of wonderful friends. The whole town knew the situation I was in. And that's when I discovered the reality of real friendship and genuine caring people. That's what I found in the Midwest where I went to live. And so I never went back to Hollywood. My aunt cut off all my connections. And uh, so I decided that I would rather get an education and uh, do something else with my life. So I became a medical technician. Regarding, regarding the other kids that were on the set, uh, when were you able to get back in touch with them and how did that happen? The Target company organized, uh, they, they had It's a Wonderful Life in their stores for Christmas in 1993. The theme was It's a Wonderful Life. And so they got us all together, all the Bailey kids, and they sent us on a tour. They reunited us, and so we went on a tour all over the United States, and we had a wonderful time. And that's when I really started hitting the road for the film, and I've been on the road ever since. So, and then we had a reunion in Jimmy Stewart's hometown that year, and uh, it was pretty exciting to meet the people that, you know, that I had worked with years and years earlier. So it was cool. And um, the kids and I, we, we, uh, we have a wonderful bond now, and we're very, very close. There are five of us left that were in the movie, cast members, and little Janie, who played the piano, she's with us, and little Tommy, who burped, and young Violet Bick, in the soda fountain scene, she's uh, Janine Roos. She's, she's still there. And then um, Harry Bailey's wife, uh, she's still with us. And her name is Ruth Patton Moss. And uh, no, no <laughs> I'm thinking Ru Ruth Aiken Bailey. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. But, um, she's still with us. She lives in um, Michigan. Ann Arbor. Now, yeah. I heard that uh, you were in. You've been in Seneca, Seneca Falls a number of times. I'm celebrating my 15th year of the It's a Wonderful Life festival that was started several years ago, and this will be my 15th year of being a part of the festival. And then in 2010, I was a pretty in integral part of starting the It's a Wonderful Life museum that's located in Seneca Falls. I feel like Seneca Falls is kind of a second home to me. Yeah. Does Seneca Falls remind you a lot of that movie set? Yes, it does. The water that 
runs along Main Street. It, 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 it just does. <laughs> Do you pretty much agree that uh, Capra most likely did visit Seneca Falls back in 1945 and that he had patterned the set? After pretty much after Seneca Falls? Yes, I do. I do believe that. And um, there was a barber who had cut his hair, and he remembered cutting his hair. And the, re- and the reason he remembered was because his name, in, in this little town, there are the Italians and the non-Italians. And the river or the canal that runs through it kind of separated the two way back when he would have been there. And so the Italian segment was where he went over to get his hair cut, and, uh, and he met this barber. And the barber's name was Tommy Bellissimo, which means beautiful. And he always remembered cutting Frank's hair because capra in Italian means goat. So he <laughs> always remembered cutting the goat's hair. And he didn't know who he was until a few weeks later he read in the paper that he was going to do this movie. The whole theme of the movie is love. Friendship and love have helped you through a lot of rough spots. Would that be fair to say? That would be fair to say, yes. But I also attribute that to a strong religious belief in God that there was a divine hand in all of it. <laughs> he uh, helped me through a lot. But... um I think the main themes for this movie is about what George learns. And, you know, he goes through the unborn sequence and a lot of things happen to him. He didn't realize how he touched so many lives. We don't realize how many lives we touch. So when he's on that bridge and he wants to live again, he says, please, God, please, God, I want to live again. Well, the minute he says the word God, it starts to snow, and you know he's back. He's, he really did learn what really is important in life. And for me, I feel like what the movie says is that it's all about faith and family and friends. And I think that all comes together in the end. You see how beautiful that really can be. And I think that's what has made it last so long and will continue to be more popular through the ages because it's such a tradition in so many homes, not only in America but also all over the world. It's become a real uh, Christmas tradition to show this film, and all the families enjoy being a part of that. I think you're so right. Do you think movies today are not as good as movies were 40, 50, 60 years ago? you think movies have improved well, or gone the other way or, or really kind of in between? I think they've gone the other way, but they're what people want to see. Um, I think that maybe the movie distributors kind of appeal to the, a different market than they used to. The standards are different, and so I think the people that watch the movies today think they're wonderful, but for those of us who find a better meaning and deeper meaning in movies of yesterday um, and delightful stories without nasty words and a lot of violence. You get that warm, ooey feeling or you laugh your heart out. Uh, It could be done differently than it is today, but today it has to be in your face. And it's a whole different kind of way of showing movies and telling stories. It's, It's different. It's 
the only thing that the young people have grown up with, and so that's the market that they appeal to when they make a movie. Every once in a while, a good movie comes out. What I've noticed is that the independent movies are the ones that seem to have more meat and remind you of the good movies in years past. And there, there are some good independent movies that come up out there. There, it's a little mm-hmm. tough. It's a little tougher for them to get the distribution, but they're certainly great movies. Yes, I agree with that very definitely. Is there any movie trivia you'd like to share with our fans? Some little things that they can look for the next time they see it. Well, when they watch the movie, uh, we always laugh about the magic wreath scene because when George takes the Christmas wreath and walks across the street and goes into the Bailey Building and Loan Office, he throws the wreath down on the desk. Well, the very next scene, he's talking to Harry on the phone, and that magic wreath is on his arm. That's a fun mistake. And then uh, 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 when Violet Bick comes to see him at the end, when... um, They've discovered that the money's missing just right before that. When she's there and she needs money, she's going to go to New York, and she kisses him on the cheek. Well, he's got a pipe in his mouth when he's talking to her, and then the very next scene, the pipe isn't even around. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. A lot of editing issues and fun stuff like that, which are, are fun to watch for, that's for sure. Here's a question for you. How did you get the name Zuzu Ginger Snaps? Well, Zuzu Ginger Snaps was a product made by the National Biscuit Company in the early 1900s, which today is Nabisco. And uh, it was a little, it was a cookie, and and the the advertising boxes had a little uh, blonde clown, female clown on the on the covers of the boxes and all over. And so when George comes back from his unborn sequence, he runs up the stairs, and he's so happy to see his kids. And I come out my door, and I say, Daddy, and he says, Zuzu, my little gingers. How does it feel owning one of the greatest lines in movie history? I think, uh, you know, I talk to a lot of children and kids and that kind of thing, and people say... You know, you were in in one of the greatest movies of all time, and how's that feel? And I, and I feel like it's it's a a privilege to be a part of that movie. It's an honor to be remembered as that little girl who said that line in such a fabulous movie. I'm I'm honored and I'm privileged that I had the opportunity to be that little girl, and really and truly, that movie will. It transcends time. It's going to be here a long time more, and it's been here a long time. And it it really applies to yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So, you know, people can say, well, you know, you're a movie star. No, I'm not a movie star. I was in very few films. There's a lot of people who were in a lot more movies than I was. But I am a piece of film history, and that I can that I will always be because of that film. And I feel very privileged to be a part of movie history. Well, we're very privileged to, that you have shared this time with us and these special memories that you have. And I want to thank you so much for being on the show. We appreciate it. Well, thank you. And um, I hope everyone 
takes the opportunity to watch the movie again this year and put yourself in that spirit for another year of rejuvenation of faith and hope and and just feel good. And uh, I have so many friends and so many fans who say that they watch that movie not only at Christmas but during the rest of the year sometimes when they get down and lone because each one of us matters. We all make a, a difference in others' lives. And, and we, we really do matter. That's what people need to realize every once in a while because you forget that. You get caught up in your little worlds and they get really small and, and you forget the big picture. But in the big picture, that money meant nothing to George after he was back. He didn't care if he was going to jail. He just knew that he had his family, he had love, not tangible things. He had this wonderful love and... How wonderful is it that we have our families and that we have the opportunity to be together? You know, a lot of people go through a lot of rough times, and I certainly have over my lifetime. But there's still good in every bad situation. Sometimes you have to look for it, but it's there. (laughs) Well said. I was going to ask you, too, um, one more thought came to my mind, and here's a question for you. Do you believe in angels? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) And believe it or not, people have been sending me angels for years. (laughs) I have many, many, many angels. (laughs) I believe in them, too. And I also believe in the in the better angels in uh, in those of us who are living as well. I think so. Thank you so much. (laughs) It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. Happy holidays. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and interview with Carolyn Wilkerson. There's been a discussion going on all week about Hollywood at our new Facebook group, with most people agreeing that the older movies were the best movies. We're encouraging all you listeners to chime in. The group is at our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash 1001 Heroes. And although it says closed group, Don't let that scare you off. It just means that all conversations are kept within that group. Just go to facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes. Look for the visit group button just below the top picture and to the right. And come on in. One of our admin people or me will sign you in as a member, whoever catches you first. Generally, we're discussing episodes or discussing possible new episodes. But you can say anything you please. We have lots of updates for all you fans. First, both of our other shows, 1001 Classic Short Stories and 1001 Stories for the Road, are doing very well. If you haven't heard, The Ransom of Red Chief is at 1001 Classic Short Stories. That was written by O. Henry. Give it a try. It very likely provided the inspiration for the movie Home Alone, and it's a hoot. The Call of the Wild is being narrated at 1001 Stories for the Road at the blistering rate of one chapter a week, which many people actually like. As it's only a half hour a week, it's well done, and it's one of the greatest stories ever written. All available at 1001storiespodcast.com and wherever great podcasts are found. If you're ever in doubt and you're not familiar with what podcasts are, podcasts are audio shows. The only thing you do have to know how to do is use the Internet. You can go to google.com and search 1001 Heroes Podcast. 
or 1001 Classic Short Stories Podcast or 1001 Stories for the Road Podcast, and you'll find 150 different ways and places you can listen to them. And we hope you do, and we hope you share them with friends. Please keep sending those reviews, iTunes listeners and Stitcher listeners and Audioboom listeners. Here's the latest from Aunt Ioli, titled Wonderful. Love these podcasts. I have all of these related podcasts because they're so good. We have received a number of comments by email, Twitter, and Facebook, all positive, regarding our two-episode series on Operation Market Garden just recently. Thank you all for your comments. Those men were all heroes. And the British High Command, starting with whoever speaks for England these days, owes the families of all those American, Polish, and British soldiers who never returned from the mess caused by poor planning and overreach a heartfelt apology. If there's a monument to that effect, someone please let us know, and we'll point it out. Doing It's a Wonderful Life and having the opportunity to speak with Carolyn Grimes Wilkerson has been a thrill for me, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. I can't tell you how many times I blundered trying to repeat her line back to her, and I couldn't get it right. I probably should have saved it for bloopers. The neat thing about her is that she was extremely patient, good-natured, and had a beautiful message to share with us. The next time you see the movie, you're going to enjoy it even more, I think. We've done a couple of movie backstories. Check out Casablanca and Brothers to the End, which was the true story that inspired the John Wayne movie, The Sons of Katie Elder. Stay tuned for more great podcasts, and thank you very much for being with us. I'm asking that this week you subscribe to all three of our 1001 shows. It's free. And bring a friend or family member on board with us as well. Thank you so much. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. <laughs>